0: good evening church this evening the scripture will come from nehemiah chapter 2 verses 17 and 18. nehemiah chapter 2 verses 17 and 18. Then, then said i unto them ye see the distress that we are in how jerusalem lied waste and gates therefore are burned with fire come let us build the wall of jerusalem That we be no more a reproach. Then I told them in the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened strengthened their hands for this good work. I read to you in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. May the Lord bless the hearers, readers, and doers of that word. Thank you, Jordan, for reading our scripture. Uh, Makes me think, last week, our young men led the service. They did a great job. Jordan and Ben both spoke and did a great, really did just an outstanding job. We're very proud of them. Jordan told me before we began tonight that he was nervous last week. And I said, well, you couldn't tell it. And they look like seasoned veterans. And so we're very proud of them. And we appreciate your presence tonight. And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 in just a moment or two as we think about the work that we have to do. Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Before we get started, I do want to welcome those of you that are visiting as always. We invite you to come back and be with us. We're so grateful that you're here tonight, and we hope that you will want to come back and be with us again. It might be the case that you're looking for a church home. We always invite you to consider the work here. We would be more than happy to have you come and be a part of the work that's going on here in this community. This morning in our lesson, I talked about one of the things that robs us of peace is the fear of death. It made me think about a while back, an elderly, an elderly lady came up to me out in the foyer. She's not a member here now. But anyway, this quite some time ago. And she came up to me and she said, boy, I like that suit. And I said, well, thank you. And she said, you ought to think about being buried in that. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I'd like to wear it out. (laughs) But she was serious. And so, look, I understand we all have to die. I just don't want to take the next train out. And so you just never know what some folks are going to say. And she was very sincere and genuine in what she said. And so sometimes you just never know what folks are going to say. I want us to look at Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 as we think about there is work for us to do. And in Nehemiah we have as a backdrop God's people had been deported into Babylon. They had been sent to Babylon by Almighty God because of sin and unrighteousness. They spent 70 years there. Under the edict of Cyrus, king of Persia, they were allowed to go back to their homeland. And they began rebuilding the temple and later the city walls. And so Nehemiah works in concert with Ezra. Ezra sought to restore the law of God among the children of Israel. Nehemiah focused on the rebuilding of the walls. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, we have first of all the prayer of Nehemiah. And there's a report that is given unto him and then a response. But I want you to look at the report and then we're going to look at some background information relative to the rebuilding of the city walls in Jerusalem. Word came to Nehemiah, and the time is about late November, early December. And the text tells us that one of the brethren from the men of Judah had come, and he asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And here's what they said. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. In order to appreciate the context here, go back with me for just a moment and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. God had been telling the children of Israel they were going into Babylonian captivity. He raised up prophets to try to encourage them to come back. Jeremiah for one. Jeremiah pled with the people of God. He encouraged them to come back time and again, and yet they refused to listen to Him. And so ultimately, they went into captivity. And so in verse 14, the text says, Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which He had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now you think about God's will. God is interested in the well-being of his people. He's always been interested in people. So much so that we can look in the New Testament and we think about the coming of the Christ. The Bible says God would have all men to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. Israel of old was God's chosen people. And even though time and again they spurned his law, turned aside from him, he still cared for them. He manifested tremendous compassion toward them. He sent the prophets of God in an effort to appeal to them to come to their senses. Unfortunately, they refused to listen. So look at verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. In other words, judgment time had come. And so in verse 17, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, And the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Now look at verse 19. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. Can you imagine that kind of a scene? We talk about the devastation that sometimes occurs, contemporarily speaking, as a result of war or because of some catastrophic event an earthquake for example a tsunami well this was a tsunami of sorts God destroyed the southern kingdom sent them into captivity spared a remnant to bring the Christ into the world but they paid a heavy price for their unrighteousness and so this report that comes to Nehemiah Nehemiah is met with sadness. As a matter of fact, look at verse 4, if you would, because here we think about the response of Nehemiah to what he had heard. And by the way, when you look at the children of Israel and you think about all the problems that they had in their past, there was a prophet of old by the name of Habakkuk. Habakkuk couldn't understand how God would allow unrighteousness to go unchecked. He cried out to God, how long, O Lord? In other words, how long are you going to put up with these people? And God said, well, you need to understand something. I'm raising up a nation to the north, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And they're going to come down and they're going to take care of business. Well, that perplexed Habakkuk. Because he couldn't understand how a nation more unrighteous than Israel could be used to punish them. But God in heaven used the Babylonians to punish the children of Israel. Then he turned around and punished the Babylonians. Sometimes we may not understand how God is working. When We talk about some of the affairs that go on in our world today. We don't have the luxury of knowing the mind of God per se. But we do have his word. And we can look back and we can see how God has dealt with nations and kingdoms in the past. And obviously... We can look at that, and we can learn the lessons. Matter of fact, I think about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2 that they serve as an example to all who will live ungodly. So ultimately, God is going to take care of the affairs of this world. Nothing gets by So, the text says in verse 4, Nehemiah said, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourned for many days. And he said, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We think about his petition to God. And note, if you would, how he begins with praise. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. How often in your prayers do you praise God for all that He is, for all that He has done on your behalf? When you step back and you think about all that God has done for us individually, collectively, nationally, should we not rise up in praise? Is God worthy of our praise? Is He worthy of our adoration? Yes, He is. The word worship means acts of reverence paid to Deity. So we're giving God the homage that He is rightfully due. Here is Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. He has a very important position in the Persian court. And Nehemiah petitions God and praises Him. Now note if you would, in verse 6, note His penitent Attitude, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, now listen to what he says, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Now here's Nehemiah, he has great affection, he is a patriot as we would say, he loves Jerusalem, he loves everything about the city, he loves Almighty God, he loves the word of God. And yet in a spirit of humility, with a penitent heart, he acknowledges not just the wrongdoing of the children of Israel, but also of his own family, of his own life. Look at verse 7. He said, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Let me just pause here for a minute. When is the last time you made intercession for this nation? When is the last time you prayed for the state of our nation? The corruption, the ungodliness, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the murders, all of the things that go on in this country. Is it not the case that we ought to be interceding on behalf of this nation? Do you remember Abraham, when God told him he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what he did? He interceded for those cities, didn't he? And God said in the long ago, if ten righteous people were found, he would spare the cities. Unfortunately, ten righteous people were not found. And by way of excursion, for just a moment, Nehemiah's going to take an excursion. He's going to go to Jerusalem and see firsthand what's going on there. But when I think about our country and the state of our country and the fact that this coming Tuesday we have the opportunity, the right, the privilege to vote. There are two things that you can do in this nation. Number one, you can be a voice for truth. The church, you remember, is the pillar and ground of the truth. Number two, you can vote. Now look, I'm not a fan of either candidate in terms of their moral character. But there is at least one character that I know of that is for the sanctity of human life. Did you know that our nation, that we have been bathed in the innocent blood of some 59 million babies? Let that register. 59 million babies. The Bible talks about Manasseh. Manasseh was a king in the southern kingdom, and he was a corrupt, a wicked king. He was the son of Hezekiah, who, by the way, was a good king. And the Bible says that Manasseh shed much innocent blood. We have a lot of blood on our hands. Under the evil regime of Adolf Hitler, some 12 million people were put to death. In our nation, under the loss of our land, four times that number have been put to death. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think God is going to turn his head and allow that to go unchecked? you think God's going to give us a pass? You answer that. But I can tell you what, we have the opportunity to vote for life. If for no other reason, when you go to the polls this coming Tuesday, you can vote for the human baby in the womb. It is a sick and disgusting nation of people that would allow innocent babies to be put to death. When you look at the abortive methods that are employed in our nation and the fact that there are some that say, you know what, you ought to be able to do that, Up to nine months, talk about barbaric, ungodly. That's what we're up against. We ought to get down on our knees and pray to Jehovah God for this nation. Pray for the leaders of this nation that they will be receptive to divine truth. Now note if you would, Nehemiah appeals to the promises of God. He said, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He said, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. One of the things that ought to impress us about Nehemiah, he had tremendous respect and reverence for God. There was a sense of humility as he stood in the presence of God and uttered his prayers. He said, Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Chapter 2 We have the plan of Nehemiah. First, we have the prayer. And he has gotten a report. He's responded accordingly. He has gone to God in prayer. In chapter 2, we have his great plan. And first, I want you to think about the emotions of Nehemiah. It came to pass in the month of Nisan in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes. And the king here was the stepson of Esther. You remember Esther, who interceded on behalf of the people of God? They were, going to be, they were going to be annihilated by the plan of Mordecai, and so Esther stood up and willingly put herself in harm's way, potentially, in order to save her people. It says, When wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king, I I'd never, I'd never been sad in his presence before. So we think about the emotions of Nehemiah, his sadness. The king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? Listen now to his supplication, the request that he makes of the king. He said, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. So he makes a request. But note, if you would, his strategy. In order to accomplish this, he's going to need supplies. He's going to need fellow servants. And So in verse 7, he said, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. But they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, That he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple. For the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So here is a man that has a plan. In order to execute that plan, he needs compliance from the king. And he needs helpers, doesn't he? He needs people that will assist in this great work. And so... He takes an an excursion. In other words, he goes to Jerusalem to see firsthand what's going on. Note, if you would, what is said. I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, Ammonite official heard of it, They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Look, if you would, at his evaluation. Note what he sees. I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. He said, I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I'd done. I'd not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So he has the opportunity to survey the city firsthand. Somebody said a long, long time ago, a picture is worth a thousand words. Sometimes it's much better to see firsthand what's going on. A lot of times... We hear about things, but we haven't seen it. And I think about some of the things that are going on in our country, some of the problems that we have. Should we evaluate? Yes. Should we be informed? Again, the answer is yes. But ultimately, like Nehemiah, we have to formulate a plan to rectify the ills, the problems that exist in our nation and our world. Nehemiah was concerned about the city of Jerusalem. That was God's holy city. And so, in looking at the efforts of Nehemiah, I think now about the pitch that he makes to the people. Look at verses 17 and 18 and consider, if you would, his exhortation. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste. Now it's easy for us to think about the physical carnage of that city. And I mentioned a moment ago, sometimes we have seen firsthand the devastating effects of war. And we've seen the effects of tsunamis and earthquakes and other national disasters. But here's what's much More saddening is the waste and devastation that is caused by sin. Jerusalem was in this shape. The children of Israel were in this shape because of their sins. We are upside down in our nation. We've got all kinds of problems. And and the reason is quite simple. It's because of sin. Somewhere along the way, we lost our bearings in this nation. Now look, we are not God's chosen people. God's chosen people today, the church, Galatians 6.10. We are the Israel of God. We are His chosen people. And so in light of that, if we're going to make a difference in this nation, then we've got to be proactive, don't we? We have to be preemptive. We can't just be reactive. So here's Nehemiah. He is proactive. He is preemptive. He wants to go in and make a difference. He wants to try to rebuild. And so he talks about the waste, the burning. And Here's what he said. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which was which had been good upon me, and also the king's words, that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. In order for Nehemiah to accomplish this task, there were two things that would be absolutely essential. Number one, it would take unity. Could Nehemiah do it alone? No. It was going to take a collective effort of people working together, blending together, using their talents and abilities to rebuild the wall. In Acts chapter 2, when we read about the first century church that was established on Pentecost Day, Luke said in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. A little bit later, Luke said, all that believed were together and had all things in common. If you want to know what a definition of fellowship is, there it is, togetherness, unity. We are people of like precious faith. When you look around and you survey the situation at hand in our nation today, and you start right here in the Mid-South and work your way out, and you think about all the problems and all the things that are going on in our nation, what's it going to take? It's going to take, number one, a plan of action. We have the gospel, don't we? What's the remedy for our nation? The Democratic Party? Republican Party? What about the Christian Party? What about what about those of us who belong to the body of Christ, recognizing that the power's in the gospel. The only way that you can change the landscape of our nation is with the gospel. That's it. You can talk about social reform and you can talk about all these different programs that need to be instituted and all the problems that we have, the racial tension and everything. The only way to rectify the ills of our nation, whatever it may be, go back to the book. Go back to the Bible. Wouldn't you love to have the opportunity to sit down with the future president of this country and right off the bat say, let me tell you what, you want to be a success, you want to be prosperous? In your presidency, here's the key right here. We ought to be praying. We ought to be united in our prayers that we can put before the future president of our nation. Godly people. That can serve as a teacher of what to do, what not to do. We need somebody standing before people in the Senate, in the Congress, the Presidency, and being a voice for God. And then I think about the unity that it took to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If we're going to, quote-unquote, rebuild our nation, if we're going to make this nation what what, what it used to be in days gone by, then it's going to take all of us being lights in this world. You remember Jesus said we're to to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world? You You remember John said the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one? In other words, the world's in darkness? And Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. So we have the light of God's Word. The psalmist said many, many years ago, send out your Word and your light. We're to be beacons of light. In Ephesians five eleven, Paul said, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but then listen to him, but rather reprove them. It's not enough for us to just to isolate ourselves from others. Look, we've got to be a voice for God. We've got to stand up and say, Look, this is what the Bible says. So it's going to take unity and then secondly, takes urgency doesn't it listen again to what Nehemiah said verse 17 come and let us build there it is the unity look at verse 18 let us rise up and build again unity but then what about the urgency the Bible says they set their hands to do this good work could I ask you a question do you think that the work of the church is a good work Is it a good thing to share the gospel? Is it a good thing to reach out and try to encourage, to bear the burdens of one another? Is it a good thing to reach out to those who are less fortunate than we by way of their material goods, etc.? The work of the church is a good work. In order for the church to go forward, there has to be vision and planning. And there has to be unity and a sense of urgency. Is it possible that as the church universal, we've lost our urgency? Is it possible we've lost sight of our unity? Let me tell you what. Look at verses 19 and 20. Our time's gone very quickly. In 19 and 20, we have the enemies. Here's what I want you to think about. Whenever good is being accomplished, there will always be opposition. Verse 19, when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us, Therefore, we are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Over in chapter 4, when they began working to rebuild the walls, in chapter 4 we read of the opposition of Sanballat and others, and they tried to destroy their work. And the point is, when we try to engage in good work, whatever good work we want to engage in, there will always be opposition. Because the devil does not like people who are united. He does not like people who, are, who see the urgency of carrying out the will of God. You think about, think about the opposition and intimidation that exists in our country today toward those of us who belong to the body of Christ. Is it not the case that the Christian today is the, so to speak, whipping post of the media, of many folks? In many, many respects, we are public enemy number one. Are we going to let it stop us? Or will we be like Peter and John when they said, after being threatened not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus, they said, we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. I want to close tonight by saying this. There is a lot of work to do, not just here, but all over this nation, all over the globe. In order to accomplish the will of God, it takes unity and urgency. It takes a plan of action. What's the old saying? You plan your work, you work your plan, and you go forward. What the devil wants to do is to hinder us, just like he sought to hinder Nehemiah and others. It might be the case that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. For whatever reason, you have been hindered in obeying the truth. And So the question tonight is, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe He's the Son of God and you would be willing to repent of your sins and confess His name and be immersed in water, then the Bible tells us all of your sins will be washed away, Acts 22:16. 16. God will put you in the church, Acts 2:47. If you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, maybe you haven't been busy. Maybe you haven't been what you ought to be as a member of the body of Christ. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you with the understanding that God will abundantly pardon 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?